Well, good to see everybody. I am somewhat surprised that uh, Jesse let me have this passage because the more I read it, the more it's like what he likes to preach on. It's weird. I invite you to turn to the tail end of Acts 22. We have been in an off and on series on Acts. Tonight it's on. I have no idea what next week holds. But that's what's fun about scum. We're going to read from Acts 22.30 to 23.11. And hopefully you'll see why I think this passage is weird. The commander wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews. So the next day he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the members of the Sanhedrin to assemble. Then he brought Paul and had him stand before them. Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. At this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing next uh, near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Do you have your YouTube clip in mind that you're going to make if you cast this? This is action-packed. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. I think that loses something in translation. I take it it was a pretty nasty thing originally. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. Just another average church service at Scum. Well, not quite. Those who were standing near Paul said, How dare you insult God's high priest? And now comes the verse where I know God knows better than me, but I sure wish he had inspired the Bible, at least in audio, if not video. What tone of voice do you read this next comment by Paul in? I'm going to do it differently from the way most people would, and I'll try to justify it later. Paul replied, Brothers, I didn't realize that he was the high priest. 
end quotation. After all, the quotation marks are just committees putting them in. They didn't exist in the ancient world. And then Luke explains what all the hubbub was about. For it is written, You shall not speak evil about the ruler of your people. That's the first half of the story. Is that weird? Gets weirder. Verse 6, Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the others Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, My brothers, I am a Pharisee. You in what army? You're a Christian. You left all that behind. Apparently not. My brothers, I am a Pharisee, descended from Pharisees. I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. Then Luke gives us another little parenthetical note. The Sadducees say that there is no resurrection and that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees believe all these things. There was a great uproar. It's not just Paul and the high priest going at it. Now, all the Sanhedrin, all 70-some members of the court, roughly evenly split between Sadducees and Pharisees. We're told from other ancient histories. There was a great uproar, and some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man. They said, what if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. (laughs) Okay, you've had some weird experiences at SCUM if you've come here for any length of time. You probably never came here worried that the leaders of the church and their fighting of each other was going to spill over and hurt you. I hope not. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. That was a rough day. (laughs) for Paul. So the following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Weird, weirder, and weirdest. And now let's talk about Lutherans and Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses. Excuse me? If you get excited at all about living in a very special moment that only happens once every 500 years, you should be excited about this fall. On October 31st, it will be... Yeah, Halloween. Um, 
And it will be the 500th anniversary of a German Catholic monk by the name of Martin Luther. Now, there's a title. Now you can see it. Who nailed a large document onto the church bulletin board, otherwise known as the front door of the cathedral. I like this uh, image better than uh, most because it shows there probably were other notices there. But it would be as if somebody came in and plastered over all these wonderful things here with a a bigger statement of what were called his 95 theses. 95 sentences or statements of what was wrong in the Roman Catholic Church in 1517. And all he was hoping to do was get some like-minded friends on his side and and help uh, correct what he thought was wrong in the church. But as so often happens, events snowballed beyond anything he foresaw and a breakaway movement from the Catholic Church that took Luther's name and called itself Lutheranism began and others with names like Zwingli and Calvin and Menno Simons and later in the next century John Wesley started what continued to be called the Protestant Reformation. 500th anniversary. How old am I? I'm so old that I can remember growing up Lutheran, a lot of big hoopla in our church for the 450th anniversary. When I was 12, I can even remember thinking, ooh, wouldn't it be cool to live to be 62? and see the 500th anniversary. And I may not get to share this enjoyment with anybody other than you, and so here I'm doing it. (laughs) But what does that have to do with our passage? Well, day before yesterday, something Martin Luther could never have imagined the technology for, I flew to Salt Lake City and back in the same day and rented a car and drove to Provo and went to Brigham Young University, which, if you don't know, is a a center of Mormonism, to participate in a day-long conference honoring 500 years of the Protestant Reformation. I don't know who's rolling over in their grave more, Martin Luther or Brigham Young. What a strange venue for that to happen at. But in part, it's happened because for the last 25 years, I have... Oh, 25 years is half of 50. Now this is really getting spooky. It's about time for somebody to predict the end of the world. Um, Oh, right, they're already doing that. Okay. (laughs) For the last 25 years, starting with a random conversation with a BYU professor that has turned into a kind of a movement, I have been involved with uh, 
evangelical and Mormon dialogues a couple times a year of all different kinds in different places. And the four men who together organize this conference are all in our little dialogue group, and I don't think that's a coincidence. But not all sects are alike. On the left is a Mormon temple, the one closest to you. If you've never taken your passport and come down to Centennial, um, it's on the south end of town, but it's still north of Highlands Ranch. You can see uh, this beautiful building a mile from where Fran and I live. And I have no idea what part of the country the Kingdom Hall of the Jehovah's Witnesses it's being shown there is in, but that's a very typical, generic, plain, uh, nondescript building without a lot of money that goes into it. And one of the interesting things that evangelicals and Mormons alike have commented on over our years of dialogue is we could never imagine there being a group of Jehovah's Witnesses willing to have the same kind of conversations. See, they don't have a major research university that's committed to education. They don't uh, have uh, a whole cadre of well-known writers and speakers and authors. If you ever get a, a little booklet from the Watchtower Society you might not even see any names attached to any of the articles. If you write their headquarters with a question and they give you a, a response, it'll just say, the editors. And until the age of the Internet, nobody even knew who the translators were of their sort of idiosyncratic translation of the Bible called the New World Translation. They're very secretive. Mormons may have some distinctive views that we disagree with, but uh, very different. Just because a group comes in a pair of people to your doorstep doesn't mean they're like the next one. And that's what Paul found himself confronted with. You knew there had to be a segue eventually to this passage. That's why I read it to begin with. Otherwise, I was worried you'd think this wasn't about the Bible at all. Now, you can find all kinds of interesting things online if you Google Pharisees and Sadducees. And I wasn't really happy with any of the options I had. But I picked this one not because we have any information to my knowledge that Sadducees wore black robes and Pharisees wore multiple colored robes. But because I think it fits the spirit of at least this one passage. We know from the Jewish historian Josephus that Ananias, the high priest, not to be confused with a bunch of other people in the Bible with that name, <laughs> one of whom dies 16 chapters earlier, was a new high priest when Paul gets back to town after his three missionary journeys, and he was a member of the Sadducees. 
Now, whatever you know about Pharisees and Sadducees, there's no truth to the little kids thing that Pharisees weren't fair, you see, and Sadducees were too sad, you see. I hope you've never been taught that or teached anybody else. If you do, apologize and correct it. The Pharisees were the popular group. Yes, I know in Wicked Dictionary, or if you're more responsible, you'll go down a hit to Merriam-Webster, um, has hypocrite as the second definition of Pharisee, but that's in 21st century English. The Pharisees were the popular group of leaders in the first century because their whole passion in life was to take God's word as found in the laws of the Old Testament and make it relevant and apply to people centuries later and help them know how to obey God in every area of life. Sounds kind of like what we ought to aspire to do. Did some of them become legalists and hypocrites? Yes. Anybody ever met any Christian who be? No, 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 don't. Don't even answer that question. But that's not what defined the movement. The Sadducees, on the other hand, were the ones who sold out to Rome, the occupying imperial force. The ones who did not think God could or wanted to change the situation. And therefore, the best thing to do was compromise in all kinds of theological and ethical ways. And it's fascinating. We often just read the Gospels, read the book of Acts, and we come across the Pharisees, you know, one of those hard-to-pronounce groups of Jewish leaders. And we just paint them all with the same brush. But if you read through, you'll find there are a lot of good Pharisees in the Gospels and in Acts. There are a lot of times when there are positive relationships between Jesus and some Pharisees, as well as negative ones. And the same is true of Paul. You won't find a single positive interaction between Jesus and a Sadducee. They are his opponents, start to finish, and the ones most directly responsible for putting him on the cross. So what happens here? Supreme Court of the country, <laughs> a lot bigger than ours, about 70 judges, split down the middle, not Republican and Democrat, but Pharisee and Sadducee. And in the first half of the story, Paul is as rude as you'll find him anywhere in the Bible. <laughs> Stick it to the man is what we would have said when we were young in the old days. You whitewashed wall. Well... It would be as if somebody came in here and took all this great and meaningful art and didn't understand it and just slapped white paint over all of it because 
That's how to make this room look nice. I mean, it's ugly, maybe even profane as it is, don't you think? Not. But all you have to do is scrape a little bit off of that white paint. And you can see what's underneath. These Sadducees put on a great outward show, but scrape off a little bit of the exterior. And they were the ones who were more consistently the compromisers. So it, it makes sense that Paul should blast away at Ananias. I'm just not convinced he ever apologized. That's not what a professor from Denver Seminary is supposed to say. Is it? Yeah, I say it. My class is there too. <laughs> now, most people would read verse 5 in a glorious Adam Skinner-like bass voice. I don't have one, so I can't. And make it sound very pious and sanctified. Or ashamed, even. Brothers. I did not realize that he was the height. I am so sorry. Let me get on my knees and grovel. And then grovel some more. Because the law says, don't speak evil about the rulers of your people. Yeah, you'd, you'd want to cry if you heard it read that way. And that's how a majority of commentators take it, too. But I can't believe it. How would it be possible? Time for another slide. For Paul not to have known who the high priest was. Now, this is clever. I'm not quite sure where the light's coming from. <laughs> and if you can see it closely, you can see that uh, this is yet one more example of trying to turn Jesus and Paul and other Christians into good Europeans and make the Jews look more sinister than they probably were. I think Paul's got the brownest hair of anybody in the picture. But he was Jewish, and no, Jews didn't have brown hair. And his hair was probably as long and had the dingle-dangle forelocks just like everybody else. But what's realistic about this picture from what we know is that when you were the accused, you stood by yourself in the center with people all around, and the presiding officer straight in front of you in the seat of honor, wearing special robes, How could Paul not have known he was the high priest? Well, some of the commentaries say it was uh, he was new to town. Maybe this was a hurried gathering, not, not planned. It wasn't on the docket. The Roman commander hurriedly summoned everyone. And, and, and maybe uh, before the proceedings started, they were, they were still just milling around and 
and the man didn't have his special robes on and, and he hadn't occupied the seat. Maybe so. But there's only one man who had the authority to lead the gathering and order any punishment to be meted out on Paul, and that was the high priest. The moment some dude ordered him slapped, he knew that was the high priest. If he didn't have any other clue. Which means... Verse 5, I think, has to be biting, sarcastic irony. (laughs) Brothers, I pointed at Eric last time so I could look at somebody. And I knew he could handle it. I didn't realize. (laughs) Somebody who acted that illegally could be the high priest? You're kidding me. I don't have the recording. That's how I envision it. And Mike Sayers has done exactly the same thing, so I operate on good precedent. (laughs) But then, it's a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Now, he calls himself a Pharisee. On one side would have been the one group. On the other side would have been the other group. Which apparently was the kind of Jew that he was raised as. But he doesn't say, I was a Pharisee. He says, I am a Pharisee. Because he was on trial for preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And Pharisees believed that one day there would be a resurrection of all people. That's what Daniel 12 teaches. Sadducees didn't. They believed only the five books of Moses, Genesis through Deuteronomy, were authoritative for establishing doctrine. And you can't find any obvious example of resurrection there. They also differed on whether they believed in angels or the spirit world, as Luke goes on to explain. So now Paul goes in a few seconds from taking an uncompromisingly hostile stand against the head honcho of Judaism of the day to ingratiating himself and identifying himself and establishing common ground since I forgot to let you stare at the title for a while, (laughs) with the Pharisees. What gives? Is it like the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses? And I'm not saying there's an absolute contrast there. There's exceptions to both, but there's some striking differences in terms of their public persona. Is it like uh, two people in your life who I may not know? Or 
two cliques or two small groups or two associations? Are there certain kinds of people that because of what they stand for, it's so fundamentally contrary to God's word and they are the ones taking the initiative to flaunt your faith and to mock your belief and your practices that there's just no way to establish common ground. There's no way to have dialogue. Are there others? It's kind of like sibling rivalry. Anybody here ever have a brother or sister? <laughs> Who got along? You you got along flawlessly all the time. I didn't. <laughs> Anybody here had more than one child where the children got along flawlessly all the time? <laughs> Sibling rivalry can be intense because it's based on having a lot in common, but then disagreeing on what at least one person thinks are some important things. People have written books about Jesus, the Pharisee, and Paul, the Pharisee. I have never seen anybody try to claim Jesus was a Sadducee or that Paul was. There's common ground that Paul can build on with the Pharisees. And it's strategic in this setting. Sure, Paul wants to avoid being imprisoned. But Paul is even more concerned that Christianity, the Jesus movement, being a follower of Yeshua HaMashiach, the Hebrew for Jesus, the Messiah, be understood to be a legitimate option for Jews in his world in Jerusalem. And while he did not get out of prison as a result of this hearing, neither was there any legal action taken against him or anything that in any way hurt the Christians, most of whom were Jews, living in Jerusalem. So to that extent he succeeded and as far as his own future went he's been wanting to get as far west in the Roman Empire as the capital city of Rome itself and Jesus appears to him the following night and says take heart take comfort you're going to get there you've been hoping to get there as a free man he doesn't tell him all the details on this occasion it's going to turn out that he'll get there as a prisoner but he will get his hearing before Nero and he will get to spread the gospel through those who come to visit him under house arrest all around the city of Rome two very different scenes back to back to back Strategic common ground or not? Yet my experience of 
21st century Christians is that most fall into one of two camps. First, there are the fighters, <laughs> the combative ones. You know, they might be nice in person, but boy, you should see what they'll say in the anonymity of Facebook. <laughs> Sometimes they're not all so nice in person. <laughs> say something that Sounds like you're supporting the wrong theology or the wrong politics or the wrong social issue, and bam, you're hit with a metaphorical two-by-four. And then there are a lot of Christians who are really nice people. I just worry as to what would happen if real persecution came. If someone's life was on the line, confess Christ and die. Would they have the gumption to do it? One wonders because they don't even confess Christ to a friend who might just look at them sideways the wrong way. And somewhere in between these two extremes is a Paul and I think is where we should be. The situations with the Ananiases of the world are pretty few and far between. For those of you who are parents, I liken it to uh, what I hope you'll never have to do if you haven't already. And one way to help it not happening is buy the little plastic prongs that you can stick in the electric sockets that any of your kids can reach. But if one of them should manage to pry one of those off, take something long and thin, worst of all, made out of metal, stick it in the electric socket while the power is on, I hope everyone here would have the gumption to, as fast as you could fling your body from wherever you are, run, grab, snatch the child and the object and rescue them from possible electrocution. This is not the time to say, oh, Dear Linda, please take that out of the socket. Do mommy a nice favor and put that little piece of metal on the floor. <laughs> However nice you may be to them the rest of the time. But those are the exceptional situations. How often can we get somewhere if we establish common ground? The last time Jesse asked me to preach, a few months ago, we were doing the Mars Hill speech in Acts 17. And if you remember, there were two groups of Greek philosophers in that story. Maybe, maybe that's the pattern I should look for. Whenever there are 
two groups of people playing off against each other, I get to preach. <laughs> the Stoics and the Epicureans. And Paul went out of his way to identify with what he could of each of those groups, but then go on to explain what neither of them understood, Jesus and the resurrection. It's not quite the same thing here, but it is interesting that he is looking to establish common ground. And that doesn't involve just religious matters. Fran was telling me a few months ago how she and somebody here were having a very calm, courteous conversation about politics and completely disagreeing with each other. And a few people started to come around and listen. And somebody afterwards said, wow, I've never seen that before. Christians should be known for being able to have those calm, courteous conversations, even when they fundamentally disagree. Maybe it's somebody at your workplace who's your thorn in the flesh there. You ever tried saying for the next month I'm going to do nothing but compliment them anytime I legitimately can for any reason, however trivial, I'm just going to suck it up and not say everything about all the crap they do? Might transform things in ways that would shock you. What about a close friend or a spouse or a family member? I've just been reading a project that a student's been doing on marital satisfaction for a doctor of ministry degree. Did you know that there are people who have done studies that if you say something nice to your spouse or your significant other four more times as often as you say something nasty, you will almost never break up. Is it really that easy? Yeah, it is. What's hard is to say something nice four times as often as you say something nasty. But you're establishing common ground. You're on the same wavelength. You're praising, you're complimenting, you're identifying with, you're agreeing with them so that then... When I do have to go to Eric and say, why are you acting like an Ananias? <laughs> For those of you who might be listening to this online, this is all hypothetical. There is no reality in this at all. Then we've established a relationship and maybe he can tell me what I need to hear as well. Would you be willing to pray to the God of the universe to point out who the Ananiases or the Pharisees are in your life and act accordingly? Father, this is a weird passage. 
And if there's part of it I've interpreted wrong, I pray that everyone here will forget it. If there's any part that is true, I pray they would remember it. I pray that you would help me, help each one of us to recognize what are those few and far between situations that so fundamentally go against your word, especially by people in positions of power claiming to know and act on your word, that we have to take a strong stand just as Paul did. But help us find countless situations, even with the Pharisees in our lives, and we confess that sometimes they are us, where we can find things to praise, even when we disagree on some other things, so that if we do have to bring up those disagreements, there'll be a better chance that they'll be heard. You're the only one in the room who knows who those folks are in everybody's lives. Help me to be honest. Help each one here to be honest as to who they are. And with the power of your spirit, act as Paul did. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.